This is Paul speaking in the first person. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I'm Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. This is God's word. Well, where to begin on this subject that we have in front of us? Well, let's start with something very topical. Fat cats. Yes, it's one of the most contentious issues in the media in Britain at the present time. Fat cat payouts. Golden handshakes to chief executives and directors of large companies. And this not for success, but for failure. So there is a clause in the contract of GlaxoSmithKline's chief, Jean-Paul Garnier, giving him £22 million if he is sacked for failure. And ordinary people and shareholders are rising up in protest and voting down these awards, while the companies respond that this will mean that they cannot appoint the best people for the jobs. Finally, the government has stepped in this week and threatened legislation if the businesses do not put their house in order. 2,000 years ago, when this letter was written first, that's just one letter, of course, not part of a, a bigger Bible that we have in front of us, there was also a concern about pay and perks in the Greek city of Corinth. Not in a business, but in a church. And not concerning the chief executive but the person through whom the church in Corinth had come into being some three or four years previously, a preacher named Paul. However, the contentious issue among the church members in Corinth was not the pay and perks that Paul was getting, or any golden handshakes. 
No, they were upset because he had not taken any pay, but had instead chosen to work for a living at his trade of tent making, while he lived among them and helped to establish and pastor their church. You can imagine the news in the Corinthian Chronicle. Preacher refuses pay, church members up in arms. Well, maybe you can't imagine it, certainly not today. It seems very strange to us. Not that Paul refused the salary, but that the church members were upset about it. Surely it would be every church's dream to get the services of a pastor like Paul free of charge. So the first thing we need to understand is the background to the situation in Corinth, which is very different to ours. And then I want you to try and understand the reasons why Paul took the decision he did not to take any pay, but then most importantly of all, and we're going to get some help from one of our visitors this evening, uh, Derek Newton, uh, who's going to be interviewed by our assistant pastor later on. How does this apply to us today? First of all, the background then. Okay, try and imagine you're in the first century. In the Greek and Roman world of the first century, itinerant philosophers and preachers who travel from city to city could support themselves in one of four ways. They could charge fees for their services, they could stay in well-to-do households supported by a patron, they could beg, or they could work for a living. The last option, working for a living, was the least popular and least esteemed. People reasoned in those days that anything worthwhile was worth paying for. And so, the more important the message, and the more important the messenger, then the more the pay. And these followers of Jesus claimed that their message was the most important message the world had ever heard, directly from God himself, a final and definitive message about his son Jesus. And the most important custodians who'd been entrusted with this message were these people called apostles, specially commissioned by Jesus to preserve and promulgate what was called the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And the Christians in Corinth knew about these apostles, as every Christian did. In fact, it's pretty clear that one or two had already visited Corinth and accepted pay and perks for their services. But Paul hadn't and didn't. And so, and now we get to the point. They thought to themselves, if Paul didn't charge for his services, it threw into doubt whether he was a genuine article. And if he wasn't a proper apostle, then he had no authority over them. And this kind of stuff he kept writing to them in, in his letters, telling them what they should do and didn't, or shouldn't do, held no authority for them. They didn't need to pay any attention to them. So we saw last week, Paul wrote to them about whether they should eat meat that had been already sacrificed in pagan temples. And we saw at the end of chapter 8, if you've got the Bible in front of you, uh, that Paul had concluded, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. And now in chapter 9, he carries on with that same principle in mind, trying to explain the reason for his decision. And in the verses in front of us, it's very simple this, it's called rights and rewards. In the first 14 verses, Paul talks about his rights. And then in verses 15 to 18, he talks about his reward. Why he chooses to forgo the pay that he's deserved for something better. 
So I want to look at each one of these in turn and then apply this to our own situation. So can I encourage you, I know it's hot and humid, it's a long day, can I encourage you to stay awake? Especially if you're a church member and think that this means that pastors should not be paid but should work for a living. And if you are, or planning to be in full-time Christian work, stay awake if you think you should always be paid and never work for a living. I think that covers everybody. Okay, first of all, rights. Verses 1 to 14. Look at the passage in front of us. Before dealing with the rights of an apostle, Paul begins in the first two verses by defending his credentials. That he is a genuine apostle who qualifies for the rights of an apostle. It begins with four, what grammarians call rhetorical questions. In other words, questions where there's no answer because the answer is so obvious. The answer in each case to the first four questions is, yes. Am I not free? Yes. Am I not an apostle? Yes. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Yes. Paul gives two bits of evidence to prove that he is a genuine apostle. First of all, his experience. He has seen Jesus our Lord, he says. To be an apostle, to qualify, a person had to have seen Jesus personally and been commissioned by him. Especially the risen Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Now, although Paul was not one of the original 12 disciples who went with Jesus through those three years of ministry, although he wasn't there actually at the resurrection, nonetheless, he says, I still qualify because on a very dramatic and unusual day, on the road to Damascus, out to persecute the followers of Jesus, he encountered Jesus, or Jesus encountered him. And there and then, he was commissioned by Jesus to be an apostle, to carry the good news to the Gentile world as he relates on another occasion, telling the story of his conversion to a king. He he says how he realized it was the Lord Jesus speaking to him. I asked when he heard the voice from heaven, he was struck to the ground, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus, whom you're persecuting, the Lord replied, Now get up and stand on your feet. This is what he said to him, Acts 26, verse uh, 16. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen of me and what I will show you. I'll rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And this is what Paul did. From that moment on, he was a man who was a driven man, driven by a mission, to go to the Gentile, and the non-Jewish world, with the message. And that's why eventually he came to the city of Corinth. And that's why he says the second bit of evidence that proves he is an apostle is the very existence of this church in Corinth. He says they're the seal of my apostleship. You see that in verse 2. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The very existence of this church proves that Paul is a genuine apostle. If the Corinthians doubt it, then they're denying their own existence. So having established that he is bona fide apostle, genuine, he then talks in verses 3 to 6 about the rights of an apostle. As we've seen, Paul is under attack. He's on the defensive against those who should have been his supporters. As I was preparing this, I wandered into the office, and some of you know in the church office, we have a very amusing uh, Christian church calendar with cartoons every day. 
That's very strict, by the one on Thursday, if you don't mind seeing the cartoon. Um, it's a picture of a church notice board, and it says, if you, you, can re- oh, you can't read it very well, but it says on the notice board, it says, Today's sermon, Et tu, Brute, is the title. And the two church members, one says to the other, it looks like the pastor must have had a hard week. Well, this is what Paul must have felt like, for he pictures himself as under judgment, having to give a defence for his actions. Look what he says, verse 3. This is my defence to those who sit in judgment on me. And he describes three rights here in verses, uh, in verses 4, 5 and 6. The same word is used. The word for right or authority to something. He says, every apostle should have a right to food and drink. That is, the basic necessities to keep body and soul together. Every apostle has the right to take an, a, a wife with him on his travels. Now, he's not talking about here whether you should be married or not. He's saying, he's talking about apostles who are married have the right to take along with them a wife who also shares the same expenses and is looked after. And thirdly, he says, every apostle has the right to pay. He says, should only Barnabas and I, one of the other apostles, not be paid to work for a living? And the answer is clearly no. He says, we should have the right to be paid. And so he goes on and talks about the reasons why an apostle like him, a preacher, should be paid. He gives four reasons. You can see them very simply. You can work them out for yourself. Let's just quickly look at them. First of all, he says it's common practice. The soldier is paid a salary for his service, verse 7. The viticulturalist can eat some of the grapes from the vines he tends. The shepherd can drink milk from the flock he looks after. And he says then, this is not just a matter of human tradition. God's law given through Moses, secondly, says the same thing in Scripture. It says that an oxen, which was treading out the grain, if you've lived like I have in the, in the Indian subcontinent, you still see oxen treading round a circle, treading the grain, which is then threshed and thrown up and winnowed out. You don't muzzle the oxen, you let the oxen bend down and eat a bit of the grain as it's going round. And he says, well, if that's true of animals, surely it's true of human beings. And if our work has benefited you spiritually, which is far more important than materially, you should give to us. And if you're already giving these Corinthians to other people who never actually did any work among them, how much more us? Then he gives a third reason, temple practice. In every temple in the ancient world, the priests who served and offered sacrifices were given some of the offerings for their own use. We saw this last week. A worshipper would bring an animal, it would be sacrificed by the priest, some of the meat would be sacrificed on the altar, some would be given back to the worshipper to enjoy in a meal with his friends, and the priest got his own cut to enable him to live. And finally, he gives a fourth and clinching reason for the right to pay, which he says is Christ's commands. He says, in the same way, verse 14, in the same way the Lord has commanded, the Lord Jesus, that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Now, which command of Christ is he referring to? Probably that given by Jesus in the gospels, it's recorded, when he sent out the twelve apostles on their first mission. This is what he said to them. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely receive, freely give. Don't take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff. And here's what it says, For the worker is worth his keep. Matthew 10, verses 8 to 10. And later on, 72 workers were sent out by Jesus. And again, the same kind of instructions. In Luke 10, you find this, verses 4 to 7. 
Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Don't greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Here's a principle that Jesus established. And he then extends that to all people in the service of Christ who are working for God's people. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul links the quotation from the Old Testament about the oxen with the command of Christ that the laborer's work is higher. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. All the elders should sit up at this point. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching, for the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. So he's establishing this principle. It's very simple. He says the worker is worth his wages. If you're working in God's service, if you're an apostle of Jesus Christ, you have the right to be paid. That is absolutely legitimate, the right to pay. Now the strange thing is, having spent all that time arguing his point, he now explains and says, that is my right, but I choose not to use it. He's already mentioned this in verse 12, but now explains in more detail the reasons for his decision in verses 15 to 18. So we come to the second part, verses 15 to 18, because he's expecting a different kind of reward. Having been a missionary for over 20 years, I know that it's possible to write prayer letters explaining how you're trusting in God with such a slant that you're hinting to people that you'd like them to supply your need. I had a friend who assured me that one American missionary used to change all the S's in his prayer letters to dollar symbols just to give people a little hint. But Paul has not written here about forfeiting his right to pay in the hope that the Corinthians will then say, gosh, we better send him something. Verse 15 he says, I've not used any of these rights and I'm not writing this in the hope that you'll do such things for me. In fact, he says, I feel so strongly about it. He says, I'd rather die than, and he's so emotional in the original, he doesn't say what he'd rather die than and our translation kind of fills in a little answer for us. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. To boast doesn't mean to show off but something in which you take pride. So what is Paul's boast which he takes pride in, for which he's prepared to forfeit his legitimate rights to pay? His boast, his pride, he says supremely, is I've been given this fantastic privilege of preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which takes precedent over everything else. Paul's boast is the privilege of preaching the gospel. Yet he goes on to say, he can't really take pride in this, for the decision to become a gospel preacher was not a matter of choice. It was not a career choice, but a divine calling. Look at verse 16. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. He was a man who was a driven man under this divine compulsion, called by God to preach the gospel of Jesus. And it's so strong, he says, if I abandon this, I will be under God's judgment. Woe to me. Can I say in passing, this is a challenge to any gospel minister and anyone who believes that God has called them to the ministry of preaching the gospel. If you're thinking about this, you need to ask a very important question. Is this a calling or a career? If it is a calling, you have no other option than to do it. But if it's a career, then you have other options And if that's the case, I simply say to you, as nicely as possible, 
if you have other options, take them. And so Paul says, if preaching the gospel was simply a matter of career choice, then I'd expect some rewards and pay for the job, but that's not the case. Not a salary, but a reward. He says, if I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. So then, if he does it without any pay, what is his reward? Paul's reward is this, to preach the gospel free of charge. Look at verse 18. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. His reward is pay, is to preach the gospel without pay. And in order to do this, he's gladly prepared to forfeit his rights so that he might preach the gospel more effectively. Now this doesn't mean that preaching without payment is more effective than preaching with payment. No, it means in this particular situation in Corinth, because Paul in other churches was glad to take uh, money and gifts from other churches. In this particular situation, preaching without pay is more effective than preaching with pay. Now we're getting to the point now, and we're not too long to go, so just stay with me, because this is the most important bit, but you needed to know the background in order to understand it. See Derek smiling, he'll explain more later. Paul forfeits his right to pay in order to avoid two dangers. Okay, here's the first danger. The danger that the messenger might be compromised. It's rightly said that he who pays the piper calls the tune. Paul knew that the Corinthians, influenced by their own cultural practices and predisposition, would want some return for their money. He knew that if he allowed himself to be paid and supported by them, he would then be put in danger and under pressure of having to trim his message and moderate his message to suit his hearers. And he was not prepared to take that risk. He is accountable to God who called him and to no one else. Gospel truth is at stake here. And Paul would rather work to earn his own living than be beholden to the Corinthians. He is not accountable to those who pay. Now, of course, and I hope this is certainly true in my case, this does not mean that those in Christian service should always refuse support from those whom they serve. What it does mean is that those who give such support should recognise that they are not employing someone to work for them. Let me say that again. Let me put it in personal terms. If you're a member of this church and you put money in the offering, which goes towards the support of myself and the staff, along with 101 other things, as we saw at our church meeting with the accounts this week, uh, but when you give that, you are not paying to employ me, or Bill, or Eilish, or John, or anyone else. Rather, you are supporting someone to work for the Lord. And there is a world of difference between the two things. That is why traditionally ministers do not receive a salary but a stipend. Don Carson says, The church does not pay its ministers, rather it provides them with resources so that they are able to serve freely. So if a minister or Christian worker gets into a situation where he's told, we are paying your salary so you'd better be careful what you do and what you say, then it's time to leave or take up tent making. Am I not free, says Paul at the beginning of the section, and the next verse we'll see next week, God willing, he says, though I am free, I belong to no man. 
His only allegiance is to Christ. Christ has called him, and he must remain free, and I must remain free of any other obligations to anyone else. It doesn't mean we're not accountable, but it does mean that ultimately we're accountable to God. And you must be free to preach the gospel without compromise. And if that means forfeiting the right to pay, then so be it. Paul is not accountable to others, but to the one who called him. That's the first danger he's trying to avoid when he says, in this particular situation, in this particular church in Corinth, with this particular bunch of people, knowing their character and predisposition, I have decided in this situation I'm not going to take any pay. Otherwise, I might be compromised. Here's a second reason. He refuses to take pay. The danger that the message might be confused. You see, think about Corinth. People judge the value of a message on how much the preacher charged to pass it on. But at the heart of the Christian good news is that it's free. God has paid the price. You can't pay money to earn your salvation. It's a free gift of forgiveness. We saw that this morning, if you're here, which could not be bought or earned. The gospel is God's free gift. So, accepting pay and standing on his rights to do so might confuse the very essence of the gospel message that he's trying to communicate to these people. And rather than risk this, Paul chooses to forfeit the right to support because accepting pay might hinder the gospel's advance. Verse 12 he says, We did not use this right, on the contrary, put it with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. The word hinder there is a very rare word. It's only found here in the whole New Testament. It's the word used in warfare if an enemy was coming and advancing down a road with all his heavy artillery and everything, you would break up the road in order to stop him getting through, to hinder him, to slow him down. A bit like, you know, blowing up a bridge so you can't get over a river. And Paul believes that if he accepts pay for his services, he might put a hindrance, an obstacle, in the way of people understanding what the Christian message really is all about. Leon Morris comments, Paul had avoided doing anything that might prevent a clear road for the gospel advance. Now we saw last week that he forfeited the right to eat meat to offer offer to idols for the sake of weaker Christian brothers and sisters. Now he says, I'm prepared to apply the same principle to abandon my legitimate right to pay in order that I might not cause problems for people who aren't yet Christians, to stop them from hearing and understanding the gospel. One famous commentator, C.K. Barrett, comments, the gospel which turned on the love and self-sacrifice of Jesus could not fitly be presented by preachers who insisted on their rights, delighted in the exercise of authority and made what profit they could out of the work of an evangelist. Now, that's still a challenge today, is it not? Or we can look at obvious examples. You know, those tele-evangelists, you see them on cable television, appealing for money, telling people to send in money, and if they send in money, then they'll get God's blessing, and they'll pray over their prayers. I saw a chap some time ago, put them all in a filing cabinet, anointed them with oil, and told everyone they get two or three times return on their money. Well, that's a, a terrible thing to do. But we also need to be careful about what we communicate in our own giving and what we do with our money. You see, I don't know, maybe maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're here as a visitor this evening. I want to say several things to you really. One is that the Christian good news is good news because it's free. 
It's not cheap. God paid an enormous price for your salvation to bring you back to God through the death of his son. But you can't pay for it. So, let's think about what our church members are thinking about this week. Putting money in a bag when we take up an offering. If in any way you're not a Christian and that communicates to you in some way, this is going to put you in some favour with God. You know, that when the divine tally comes on the day of judgment, that God will have got all these fantastic computer records that say, when you were in Charlotte Chapel on the 8th of June 2003, you put pound fifty in the offering. That is going in the credit account. And that God kind of cuts these things up. I've met people who think this. They think, well, if I give some money, it will put me in a good light with God. What do most people think about who aren't Christians about the church? I listen to people and they say, the church is after your money. And if any way we communicate that, I'm speaking to those of us who are Christians in churches, we're doing the gospel in his service. We'd be better not doing it at all for the sake of putting an obstacle in the way of people understanding that the gospel is a free gift. And if you're not a Christian then nothing you do will ever earn you any favour with God. That's the bad news. The good news is that God has done everything to give you his favour through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, almost finished. A concluding question. To pay or not to pay? That is the question. No, it isn't. The gospel or not the gospel? That is the question that overrides everything else for us as Christians and churches and determines whether we choose to use our rights or like Jesus, we forfeit our rights gladly so that others might benefit and might come to faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son. Let's pause for a moment's prayer.